Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Marianne Mason. I'm the Dean of the Graduate Division, and I'm pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is this year's speaker in the Jefferson Memorial Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated to tell you how the endowments supporting the lectures came to UC Berkeley. The Jefferson Memorial Lectures were established in 1944 through a bequest from Elizabeth Bonestell and her husband, Cutler L. Bonestell, a prominent San Francisco couple. The Bonestells cared deeply for history and had hoped that the lectures would encourage students, faculty, visiting scholars, and others to study the legacy of Thomas Jefferson and to explore the values inherent in American democracy. Past lectures... Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick, Senator Alan Simpson, Representative Thomas Foley, Walter Lefebvre, and Archibald Cox have delivered Jefferson Memorial Lectures on early American history about Jefferson himself and on American institutions and policies in economics, education, and the law. And now a few words about Elizabeth Warren, one of the lead, America's leading commentators on consumer issues in the law Elizabeth Warren has been an outspoken critic of America's credit economy, which she has linked to the continuing rise in bankruptcy among the middle class. No one in the audience, I'm sure. Her critical analysis of Congress's latest revision of America's national bankruptcy law has received wide attention in the media, as well as in academic and policy circles. At Harvard Law School, Warren's courses include contract law, bankruptcy, and commercial law. She said recently that she has spent decades writing in academic books and teaching an entire generation of law students about the, the rules of money. Those rules include the formal statutes of commercial law, the policies inherent in them, and the ethical problems that they can produce. Warren is a frequent contributor to articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Women's E-News, and her commentary appears regularly on National Public Radio's news program, All Things Considered, and on the Internet forum, The Huffington Post. After earning a BS from the University of Houston in 1970, Warren was awarded a JD from Rutgers University, Newark, in 1976. She joined the faculty of Harvard University in 1992 and has served as the Leo Gottlieb Professor of Law since 1995. Prior to Harvard, Warren taught at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, the University of Texas Law School, the University of Houston Law Center, the University of Michigan, and Rutgers School of Law. Warren has channeled her expertise in commercial law into numerous other professional uh, activities. She acted as chief advisor to the National Bankruptcy Review Commission from 1995 to 97. She served three terms on the Federal Judicial Center Committee on Judicial Education, 1990 to 99. And since 1995, Warren has been the United States advisor to the Transnational Insolvency Project. In presenting its nomination of, of Professor Warren for the lectureship, the selection committee spoke of Warren's prominence as a commentator in public discourse on bankruptcy and other consumer issues. A scholar of great originality and insight into commercial law and a law teacher and lecturer of exceptional distinction. According to committee chair Harry Ann Schreiber, the Reasonfield Professor of Law and History, at a time when the social safety net it's no longer taken for granted by Americans. It's unremitting attack in Washington and many state capitals. Elizabeth Warren's unique importance as a researcher and writer concerned with changing income distribution and the imperiled condition of the nation's social welfare 
makes this lecture one of the special importance to the campus community. I should say personally that I read her book last year, The Two Income Trap, and I would put it among my very favorites of policy books that both made sense and are going to change policy. So it gives me very great pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Warren. Thank you, Dean Mason. Uh, thank you, uh, members of the Berkeley faculty, uh, uh, Berkeley students, and Berkeley friends. It's an honor to be invited to give the Jefferson Lecture, uh, especially to follow in the footsteps of such esteemed people. And it's also a particular pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate the hospitality uh, that has been extraordinary uh, and the good weather. Uh, since I was on a plane that had to be de-iced before it could take off, uh, uh, it really does seem that I've landed in heaven. So, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a special treat to be here today. I want to say um, I like to talk about the things that I care about and that I'm passionate about. And I only get nervous about the fact that I may not tell you all the things that I want to make sure that you know, and I may not be able to say it as clearly or distinctly, because I want you to hear these things. But today I feel a, a, a special anxiety as I get ready to do this, because the only two conversations uh, that I have had uh, running throughout the day today have been how appalling it is to use PowerPoints. <laughs> and about boring lectures and falling asleep during them. So, uh, you know, having my confidence boosted uh, before I came in here, um, I will uh, uh, approach this somewhat gingerly. Um, what I wanted to talk about today is I wanted to start by talking about what I think is the single most important economic shift of the second half of the 20th century in the United States. And that is that millions of mothers poured into the full-time paid workforce. Um, a woman uh, in 1970 uh, who had a 16-year-old child was less likely to be in the workforce than a woman in 2003 who had a six-month-old child at home. Uh, it was a profound shift in America. Uh, the median family in America, uh, uh, married couple family in America, went over a 30-year period, median, middle, from being a one-income household to a two-income household, uh, a significant shift. And so if we had known, uh, let's say, uh, 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 30 years ago, 35 years ago, we've been sitting here in, in 1970, and uh, uh, as part of the Jefferson Lecture, I'd had my crystal ball and I'd said, here's what's going to happen over the next 30 years. Mothers are going to pour into the workforce, take on full-time work. They're going to get better educations. They're going to have more work experience. Their incomes are going to rise. They won't get all the way to where men are, but they're going to make substantial advances. Now let's speculate on what the family will look like 30 years hence, that is in 2000, 2005, 2007. Well, the first thing I would have estimated is that people would stop living in suburbs that are far out. I would have guessed everyone would live close in, that no mother of a six-month-old child would commute an hour and 40 minutes to work. Uh, I would have been, of course, 
very wrong uh, in that first estimate. The second thing I would have guessed is that families will be very wealthy. They're going to have lots of savings, no debt, uh, uh, and plenty of vacations, right? If you've got two people in the workforce, uh, there's going to be a lot of extra income. They're going to be secure. Uh, there won't be a lot of bankruptcy. There won't be a lot of default. Uh, nobody's going to be dealing with debt collectors. That's what it's going to look like come uh, the new era. So let's see what happened. This is all inflation-adjusted. Everything I'm going to do today is going to be inflation-adjusted, so we can just make that assumption as we go forward. This is what happened to median income from married families, and this is going to be my period to the extent the data permit it. It's basically going to be one generation, 1970, 1971 to 2005, 2006. What happened in a single generation from your mom and dad to you, okay, is what we're talking about here. And you see how income goes up for families. But there was an underlying message that was not nearly so good. And that is income went up for married couples, but the green line, the one underneath, uh, you notice that income for males, fully employed males, in fact, didn't rise at all. And if you actually look at the numbers, a fully employed male today, once we adjust for inflation, makes about $800 less than his father made a generation ago, talking about median earners here. Okay, so what that begins to tell us is the first part of the story. Family income rose, but as I said, it was rising only because women were going into the workforce. In other words, the, 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 the bump we got is not a bump on top of the bump we were getting because men were also earning more over this period of time as they had been in the 70 years that preceded, but is a bump that comes only because they put a second worker into the, into the workforce. All right, but my prediction should still hold. After all, families are getting richer in the sense of more income over time. What happened? Savings went down in this same time period. So the one income family in 1970 was putting away about 11% of their take-home pay. Think about that. Week after week, month after month, they're putting away about 11%. By the year 2006, uh, you notice the line goes below zero. This is, this is a concept only Alan Greenspan would love. Uh, negative savings. Uh, the American family today puts away nothing and, frankly, has been putting away nothing for the last five or six years. Uh, there's nothing there. There is no savings. So savings didn't go up the way I predicted. Oh, but something went up. And that's revolving debt. I picked revolving debt. I could have picked any of them. Uh, revolving debt just basically means credit cards, uh, where you can carry a, a balance outstanding. We could have picked consumer debt, which would also include car loans and, and, and uh, payday loans and a few other kinds of, of uh, debt. We could have included mortgage, and we would have gotten much the same picture. Uh, revolving debt is a percentage of annual income. Notice uh, there's supposed to be some decimal points in there that aren't showing up very well. I don't know what happened in the translation of the program. But basically, in 1970, the median family in America was carrying about 1.4% of its annual income in revolving debt, store charges. Uh, so in other words, a tiny little fraction on average. Uh, by the year uh, 2005, the median family is carrying about 15% 
of its annual income in revolving debt. Okay, just sort of there at the average. So savings have gone down, revolving debt has gone up, and it gives us this picture if we put the whole thing together here. And that is the left side, 1972. The family blue is saving 11% and carrying in debt about 1.4%. By the year 2005, is carrying credit card debt equal to one in every $7 that it earns, 15.6%. And its savings rate is negative 8 tenths of a percent. So uh, think about what that means. That means over the last 30 years, in terms of a shift, the family spent everything that mom's income added to the family fisc, spent everything they used to save, that 11% that they used to put away, and went into debt, another 15% of income on top of that. They spent it all. Now, whoops, what did they, I'll do it a little fast. What did they spend it on? This was the question that really drove me in my research over the last few years. Um, where do they spend the money? Because what's interesting here is that everybody has an answer on this one. People can tell me exactly what they spend it on. People are sure. And so I started, I found out, the federal government has actually been keeping data on how Americans spend their money. This is done through the Commerce Department, large parts of this, and some of it through the Labor Department. They've been keeping this for more than a century so that you can look at data on canned meat consumption going back to the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, you can check out alcohol consumption. Uh, you can check out cracker consumption. Uh, it's not all about food. It's about cars and rugs and furniture and all sorts of things that the government's been collecting data on. So I found this source for all the data right down the bottom in that, what is, I don't know what the type is called, like 0.01 type. Uh, it tells what the government office is that's responsible for this, and if you have any questions, what you're looking for. So glory be to the internet. Found a phone number and found a live human being who, when I started trying to ask about how you could stabilize this stuff and look at it over time, we all understand how you could do inflation adjustment. He said something about, I said something about, can you disaggregate this so that you can look at families matched for family size? That's, that's really the question here. And the guy said, uh, well, he said, I guess if you cared, I could run the data. And, oh, to someone like me, my little heart, you know, starts beating faster and uh, I'm panting into the phone. And I said, you can actually run the data? He said, yeah. He said, what kind of family do you want to look at? And I said, I want to look at a mom, dad, and two kids. Because we have such variations. We have so many more one-person family households now. Uh, and, and, and variations. I want to look at a mom, dad, and two kids. That'll help me stabilize both on age and uh, family composition. I want to look at a mom, dad, and two kids in the 1970s, 1970, 1971, and I want to look at a mom, dad, and two kids in 2003. And I'm trying to gather these data. And I want to compare them. We'll lump together some expenses, and I want to be able to compare them over time. We'll adjust for inflation and figure out how much more people are spending. And he said, great. So he said, what's the first one you want to do? What's the first run? Because you've got to test this stuff out and see if you're getting it right. And I said, clothes. How much more are people spending on clothes today? Because all I ever hear about are uh, designer toddler outfits, uh, right? Uh, the Gap, right? Uh, 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 $200 sneakers. Uh, uh, all the fancy things that, that people are spending on themselves and their children in terms of, we have a closet full. And look, 
I think this is probably right. Uh, I can't get a parking place at the mall. You know, uh, all the dressing rooms uh, are always full. So it must be that we're spending too much on clothing. So he calls me back when uh, he gets the first data runs and, and emails them. And he says, okay, he said, I've got your number. And I said, good, what's the number? And he said, 32%. And I said, so they're spending 32% more. And he said, no, they're spending 32% less today than they spent a generation ago in inflation-adjusted dollars. And of course, you know, it's like one of these things. The first, I have to tell you, this is really awful. The first eight times I talked with him after he gave me this one, I knew he had the numbers wrong. Finally, we ran this six different ways to Christmas, and I finally believed that the numbers were right. And then you start to think about it, well, you know, it makes sense. Everybody shops at discount today. Uh, nobody pays full price in a department store. We import a lot more of our clothes than we used to. Uh, men don't wear expensive suits except for my husband. Uh, 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 people don't wear leather shoes. Uh, little children wear sandals and go barefoot a lot, you know, on and on and on. And so the numbers hold. That clothing uh, expenses for a family have gone down by 32%. So, okay, food, let's do food, and let's be sure to put in eating out. Because we all know with mom not at home anymore, uh, it's got to be that families are spending a fortune on eating out. And besides that, in 1972, nobody ate kiwis, uh, and nobody paid for water, right? Uh, uh, my, my grandparents would be appalled by this, right? So how much more is today's family spending on food than they spent a generation ago? Same sort of matching, including eating out. And the answer is they're spending 18% less on food than they spent a generation ago. Um, and once again, uh, welcome to the world of big box uh, 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 stores where people are buying on very thin margin supermarkets. Uh, people eat a lot more pasta and they eat a lot less uh, meat than they used to. Uh, there are lots of reasons uh, that it's actually gone down in terms of what we spend on food. Okay, so I'm beginning to get the hang of this. I said appliances. Nobody had an espresso machine uh, a generation ago. Nobody had a separate popcorn popper. No one had a microwave oven. And by the way, for each of these, um, one of the fun parts of being able to do research, you can't do this in a lecture, you can't burden a lecture with this, but it's to get all the quotes, uh, to get Robert Frank and Julie Shore and all these people who are explaining why Americans are in so much financial trouble. And each time, of course, they're explaining about how much we spend on clothing, how much we're spending on food, and how much we're spending on appliances. So uh, just in your own mind, pack all those in. And of course, you know where I'm going. 52% less on appliances than they spent a generation ago. Um, and you get the rest of the pattern. Uh, per car average, uh, yeah, we can talk about SUVs, uh, you know, the size of a living room and, and uh, uh, Corinthian leather or whatever it is you think, you know, as tele uh, uh, with televisions in the back. The reality is the per car cost of owning a car in America has gone down 24% in 30 years. Principal reason for it, Americans today keep a car more than two years longer than they kept it 30 years ago, and repair costs have dropped significantly. So the per car, this is what people really spend, not what they projected might have spent, uh, have gone down dramatically. Whoop, I'm get a little fast here. So the question is, I know, a little trigger happy with this thing. So the question is, if all those things went down, if, if clothing and food and appliances and cars went down, and by the way, I could do a lot of this with a lot more consumer goods. Electronics went up, surprise, surprise, 300 bucks, okay? Um, uh, dog food went up, uh, that one went up. Baby food went down, uh, cigarettes went down, liquor went up, you should watch that. Uh, dry cleaning went down, you know. 
The point is, there's either wash or a negative in terms of kind of ordinary consumption. The idea that we are an over-consuming society, what most people talk about when they're consuming. So where is the family spending more money than they spent a generation ago? Well, let's start with a three-bedroom, one-bath house that the median income family is paying for. And there it is, inflation-adjusted dollars, a 76% increase in what a family spends on a mortgage. That's the mortgage payment month in, month out. Now think about that. We have much lower mortgage rates than we had 30 years ago, for those of you who are old enough to remember. But the difference is, when you take out a mortgage for much more money, uh, the low interest rate uh, will not make up for that difference. Um, and I want to emphasize here, the median-sized house that we're talking about here did grow slightly in this period. It grew from 5.8 rooms to 6.1 rooms. So this is not about, and, and, and on average, this family, this median family, either picked up a second bathroom or a third bedroom, but not both. Um, so for those of you who want to say, oh, but I've driven by the McMansions, the, you know, everybody has to have granite countertops and spa bathrooms and media rooms. I've seen them, I've seen them, I've seen them. And compare that with Levittown, uh, which is more than 30 years ago, but, but to give the idea. All that tells us is that the new housing market has shifted from the entry-level house, which is what was being built in the 1950s and 1960s, to, on average, when you buy a new house today, it is your third to fourth house purchase. That is, you've moved up and moved up until you can afford this bigger house. In other words, housing is not being built for 70% of American families. It's being built for the top 20% of American families. That's what we see when we see the new construction that's underway. For the average family, today, they are about 50% more likely to be in a house more than 25 years old and have all of the attendant uh, expenses for maintenance. But just looking at the mortgage, 76% more for a mortgage than they had a generation ago. Okay, what's the next one they spent money on? Health insurance. This is my family that's healthy. And my family, because I've, I've loaded the dice here, that's lucky enough to have an employer who sponsors health insurance. So I'm going to make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of employer-sponsored health insurance. How much more does today's family pay? And the answer is they pay 74% in inflation-adjusted dollars more than they did a generation ago. Third one, cars. Increase of 52%. Okay, Warren, how did you get cars both above the line and below the line? Well, I teach commercial law. Um, but the answer is, the median family with two people in the workforce has moved from being a one-car family to being a two-car family. Uh, families living out in the suburbs, even if they keep a parent at home, can't get by on one car much of the time. They've got to have two cars in order to be able to get to the doctor, to be able to get to the grocery store. So families spend more because they have more cars than they used to have. Fourth biggest, remember, I've got my mom, dad, and two kids, and of course the big difference was mom was at home a generation ago, today she is uh, out in the workforce, is child care. Now, I put child care at 100% increase. In fact, you may remember from third grade that you can't divide by zero, so I could have picked 1,000% or 1% or whatever I wanted to pick here. It is a new expense picked up by the two-income family that was simply not there for the one-income family. And 
we have one more expense, and that's taxes. What's happened with taxes is that progressive tax system, as mildly progressive as it is, the first dollar that the second earner earns is taxed after the last dollar of the first earner, so it means that the tax rate for this economic unit has gone up by about 25% uh, in this period of time. Okay, so there it is, downs and ups. And I hope there are two things you notice about the downs and ups. The first one is the downs, frankly, are all smaller purchases than the ups are, and that's bad news. And the second is the downs are all flexible purchases. That is, lose your job, get sick, have a tough month with various expenses. You cut back on the down expense. Don't buy appliances this month. Don't, you know, cut back on food. It's not that you quit eating, but, you know, there's a difference between macaroni and cheese and steak. Families have flexibility in all the things that shrunk. They shrunk the things where flexibility is. But look at those other expenses. Those other expenses are big, fixed, relentless expenses. And so this gets to what I think of as the heart of, of what my research is about up to this point. And that is what these families look like. And I, I do look at this one the way a commercial lawyer does. If, if this were a little business, what these families look at. The single income family back in the early 1970s earned less money. That's the first thing you'll notice here, right? They're making about $32,000. Uh, this is all inflation-adjusted dollars again. And you notice, of course, they're making a whole lot more money, making about $63,000, but $73,000 uh, in the early 2000s. So, but notice those five expenses that I gave you on the preceding chart, that's the part that's in red. The early family is spending right at half its income on these big fixed expenses, these expenses that are very difficult to cut down, to trim back, to cope with. And that family, by the early 2000s, has committed three quarters of their income in order to meet those five basic expenses. In fact, you'll notice the math we've done here. The family, the two-income family, the mom, dad, and two kids, the prototype of the family that's supposed to be working in America, the one that's supposed to be making it all, by the time they pay their five basic expenses, they have less money left over, fewer total dollars than their one-income parents had a generation ago. And now, from the point of view of a commercial law scholar, if I were simply looking at them, and these were businesses, this is, you know, business A is on the, the far side and business B is on the near side, I'd say, well, business B is going to go broke a lot more often than business A because they have so much more, uh, so much less flexibility, so much more debt, uh, they're much more deeply leveraged and are going to have a lot harder time economically. And in fact, that's about what's happened to these families. So there's the heart. Now I want to I shift this a little bit to say that's the economics of what's happened. We've seen it on the income side, we've seen what happened on the expense side, and we've seen what it did to the American budget, how it changed and made this a riskier economic unit. But now what I want to do is I want to press on how this family in the 2000s faces, in fact, even more risk than these numbers suggest. All right, first part, let's think about it from the income side. The family of the early 2000s now has to have two incomes 
in order to keep its health insurance, to make its house payment, uh, to keep its cars on the road. Uh, that means, just statistically speaking, if the risk of losing your job had stayed exactly the same over the last generation, the family on the right has twice the risk of the family on the left of not being able to make the mortgage payment. Yes, they've diversified, they won't go to zero, but the point is they won't have enough to make the mortgage payment. Um, so what we've got now is we've got families who don't have to bring in 52 checks in order to be able to make the monthly mortgage payment. They've got to bring in 104. And if either of them loses their job, they don't make the mortgage payment. They're, they're flat out a lot. And let me say this another way, because I want to give it one more twist. The family on the left has, has a hidden resource here. They have another worker, the added worker effect. If dad, and that's who it usually was, loses his job or has a heart attack and, and can't go to work for three months, the family on the left has somebody they can send into the workforce. Now, she doesn't make as much money as she does by the year 2000. She doesn't have as much education. She doesn't have as much on-the-job training. But, and here's the key, every dollar she earns is a new dollar. It's an unbudgeted dollar that was not part of what they originally had. So, for example, the family on the left that collects unemployment insurance combined with the additional income that mom can bring in for a temporary period of employment, they got a chance. They'll go down some, but they got a chance to pull through and come back up on the other side. The family on the right, if something goes wrong, there's no place to go. They've already got their other person, not only at work, but already fully budgeted. They've already given up that income fully um, uh, in order to survive. But the risk of losing your job, the risk of, of losing income, didn't stay steady between the early 1970s and today. I draw here on Jacob Hacker's work. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it, uh, the great risk shift. Uh, what Jacob has done in this is looked at a family's chance of a 20% or greater drop in income. And he starts back in 1970. Uh, Jacob is a, a, a good friend and will stick with the same years I want to go with. Um, and he goes up to 2003, and you notice how income volatility has gone up in this period of time. So now we've got that family not only struggling because they've got to have 104 paychecks, struggling because the odds that one of them will be laid off has gone up from where it was a generation ago. Okay, so that's where they are on the income side in terms of risk. This is risk that this little unit has to bear. Let's think about health. Okay, same argument I could make as before. Uh, they now have double the chance that somebody will be in a car accident and uh, one of their two workers and won't be able to go to work and therefore make enough money to pay the mortgage payment. But this family now faces additional risks on the health side as well. What additional risks do they face? Well, I'll pop forward to one, and that is the increased odds that they won't have health insurance. Uh, those odds have gone up over the past 20 years. But the ones I like to think about, I keep coming back to this one because it's my favorite slide. Um, the ones I like to think about are that the world of healthcare has changed in 30 years. So let me just give you an example. In, in 1971, a woman who was healthy and gave birth to a healthy baby, ordinary delivery, non-cesarean, stayed in the hospital for five days after the day the baby was born. 
That's what insurance paid for. That's what the hospital expected. You could go home earlier if you wanted to, but you're entitled to five days in the hospital. If you had a cesarean, ten that you got to stay in 1971. Anyone know what the numbers are in 2006? 24 hours. Okay, 24 hours. And keep in mind, in some places, that's by legislation because they were trying to push them out faster. How have we made gains in hospital efficiency over the past 30 years? You send home the sick people. Uh, it really works. There is a policy. We never want to talk about this in the United States. It's known in the trade, in the hospital trade, is send them home quicker and sicker. Um, they save money by letting the family provide nursing care instead of having the hospital. So you still have your surgery done at the hospital, but it's the family that will take care of you post-surgery. And so today we, we witness the spectacle of uh, uh, my mother-in-law, uh, uh, a woman in her 80s, where someone's trying to explain to her how it is that she can wash a tube and, 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 and rinse things out and give injections. Uh, my sister-in-law was just asked to do this when my brother had some surgery. Uh, we're going to train the family to take care. Only they're both at work. And the consequence of this means that for these families, with everybody in the workforce, somebody gets sick, you just take off work. Because uh, somebody's going to have to take care of them. Somebody's gonna have, you're not going to get this extra period of nursing care. Um, it's just another way to give one more push. How about if a kid gets sick, a uh, child, I mean something really serious. Uh, grandma falls and breaks a hip. A generation ago, there was someone at home to provide that nursing care, you know, for that extra eight weeks that grandma needed some extra help. Today, the illness of a family member has a direct income impact for people who aren't lucky enough to have jobs that pay you even when you're not at work. So the consequence is we end up with these families. Uh, the child gets sick. I read these stories over and over in my bankruptcy files. The child gets sick. Um, Mom stays at the hospital with the child until she loses her job. Um, there are income effects now from any illness anywhere in the family. So we end up with a family, once again, bearing more risk that someone will get sick. And, it, you know, and we can just keep multiplying this. Uh, what are the odds of spending $10,000 in an emergency room today compared with spending $10,000 in an emergency room a generation ago? Um, one more that I just have to mention that we can't quantify yet, but I'm watching it, is that insurance itself has changed in terms of how much of the medical cost is actually covered. Uh, we now have floating around in America what I just, I don't know what else to call it except faux insurance. People who think they're insured until they actually get sick and need their insurance, and it turns out that, well, yeah, you have insurance. I love the Utah policy, uh, uh, right, that our uh, Secretary uh, of uh, 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 Health, Education, and Welfare comes out and says, I got everybody in, in Utah insured, except it doesn't cover hospitalization. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't cover specialists. Uh, and you call that health, and of course it doesn't cover prescription drugs, and it doesn't cover supplies, and it doesn't, there's more that it doesn't cover than it does cover. Um, so all of this is being pushed back on the family. Um, so I'm going to take one more twist on this. So we've got changes in jobs, changes in health insurance, changes in health care, what it costs to do health and care. And I just want to put one more tweak into it, and that is to talk about the special risks facing families with children. I've made this my iconic family. 
Um, but I want to make two points about the iconic family here. The mom, dad, and two kids. This is how it works for a mom, dad, and two kids. Think how, think how it works for either a mom and two kids or a dad and two kids. Um, they are now competing. As I, I actually met a woman. It's a, it a wonderful exchange. I, I was sitting on an airplane right after the book came out, The Two Income Trap, and I had it on my lap, and this woman next to me said, hey, have you read that book? And I said, mm-hmm. And she said, I'm a divorced mother. And she said, I'm an accountant. She said, I make a good income. I make above a median income in the United States today. She said, I could make it. I could support my two kids on what I get for child support. Uh, I, could, I could do it if I were only competing against other one-income households for the basics, for housing, for health care, for all the things we're buying. But she said, I'm competing against two-income households. And she said, I just can't do it. So I can't, I can't hang on. I can't make it. So that's the first part I want you to see. The one-income family gets the lower income, faces the, still faces high expenses, still wants the house, and, and so on and so forth, and faces all the same risks with no one to back up and, and provide that second income. But I want to slip forward to say something else about families with children. And that is, this goes back to hackers' work. Percentage increase in volatility by family type uh, from 1970 to 2003. And notice what Hacker points out here. For those of you who can't read the wording, all the way over at the far side, green is single without children. That's how much income volatility. And look, that's substantial income volatility that we've got there um, uh, in the high 30s. Uh, single with children, a little above 40%. Married without children, you get about a 70% volatility. And married with children pushes up to about 95% increase in volatility over the past generation. Now, are families struggling with this? Well, let me show you some of my data. Oh, not my data, government data. I never know what the next slide's going to be. Uh, it keeps me on my toes. The next one is to disaggregate a little bit more about housing. We talked just a little bit about it before. This is one of those charts. It doesn't fit perfectly with what I'm talking about because the years aren't quite right. This is some government data I found. Only goes back to 1983, but notice what it shows. That increase in housing costs, what families are paying for mortgages, never got my part in general. They've done it the other way around. What they're paying for the house itself, what the cost of the house is. We saw a 50% increase among families with no children, inflation adjusted and what housing costs. But you notice among families with children, it's a 100% increase, a full 100% increase in inflation adjusted dollars for what a home costs for families with children. Now, we're going to save plenty of time here for Q&A because I think that's more fun than, than having to listen to a lecture. But I'll tell you at least how I read this chart. Families are buying schools. People without children don't have to buy schools. And so they buy from a wider pool of homes. They can look at a lot of homes in a lot of neighborhoods. Families with children are buying what they believe is a shrinking resource. That is, places where you can have decent public schools and send your children to public schools. And in fact, we can triangulate these data in other ways so that you'll love this. Uh, I wonder, I was going to say it would happen only outside Boston, but I bet it also happens outside Berkeley. We just have the data outside Boston. A five-point increase in third-grade reading scores 
between two side-by-side municipalities in the Boston suburbs that are otherwise matched for access to public transportation and size of the houses. They've matched them for everything. Sidewalks, crime rates, racial composition, everything you want to look at. Five points in third grade reading scores translates into tens of thousands of dollars of difference in housing prices. Parents are buying schools. Um, uh, There was a great one out of San Diego, a study out of San Diego, where they were having parents do preferences on where they'd buy. Parents would rather live near a toxic dump than live in a place where they thought the schools were underperforming, where they thought their children would not have as good a chance in school. And I think that's what we're that's a large part of what we're seeing here. So parents say, I gotta have those good schools. I gotta, I gotta get out there, I gotta push, I gotta, I, I gotta get forward. Um, uh, they're spending more, as we've talked about. So what happens to them when they push this hard? Well, there comes in just a little touch of what I wanna talk about with the safety net. Uh, what's happened to the American safety net for these families? Well, the first part is the personal safety net, the part you build yourself. We've already looked at the data on that. Uh, Less savings, more debt, uh, more people without health insurance than we've ever had before. And by the way, I should make a point on this, more people without health insurance. Um, It's really been important to see here how much lack of health insurance in the 1970s, the typical modal uninsured person was an unmarried male no children 23 years old. Today, modal is a 35-year-old married person with two children, uh, has no health insurance. Uh, This is the largest uh, uh, group when you start looking at the groups who have no health insurance. Um, In 2001, 1.4 million people lost their health insurance. Of those, 800,000 earned more than $75,000 a year. That is moved from the insured to the uninsured ranks um, that we have data for. So what we're starting to see is the people who have no health insurance, the people who've lost that part of their safety net are increasingly among the middle class. Um, We could pick some others. Uh, The shift between the defined benefit plan and the defined contribution plan, for those of you who, who keep up with the pension lingo, What it basically means is the shift so that you put in money and you take the risk of how long you'll live, that is whether or not you'll outlive your money, versus the defined benefit plan, which is you get a certain amount until you die. Uh, We've moved very much to the former uh, from the latter. Um, So you have a real chance to to outlive. Those are on the, the personal side. If you take a look on the public side, we've had the same kind of erosion of the safety net, and that is uh, unemployment benefits uh, no longer as a proportion of income uh, are nearly as high as they were 30 years ago, so they're not providing the same kind of safety. Um, I would make a pitch that what we pay for public education to launch our children into the middle class uh, has eroded sharply. Um, And I'll make the pitch this way. I'm giving you lots of different pieces that we can talk about here, but But here's the way it goes. In 1970, it took 12 years to educate a child to go forward into the middle class. How do I know that? I know that from looking at Gallup polling data about what parents thought it took to make it in the middle class. And the answer was a high school diploma, a good work ethic. There were parents who believed in college. 
but they believed that you could make it in the middle class with a high school diploma and a willingness to work hard. Roll that forward to the year 2002. Here's a, here's a great number for you. Twice as many people in America by 2002 believed that the moonshot landing was faked and, and, and filmed in Burbank, California, than believe you can make it into the middle class in America without a college diploma. Americans who differ on everything have adopted wholesale in a single generation that there is a single ticket to the middle class, and that is a college diploma. Now, all by itself, would I be opposed to this? Are you kidding? I'm in the education biz. Uh, I think this is fabulous, right? Everyone should get a college. My dog should get a college education, right? I'm, I'm for college educations. I think that's terrific. The difference is, when you look at middle class families, if you needed 12 years, Back in 1970, taxpayer paid for it. You got it all for free. Uh, all you had to do was show up, live there and show up. By the year 2000, right, if you need a college diploma, you've got to pay for it yourself, by and large. Sure. Berkeley, other state-supported schools, I guess that means you guys are not paying any tuition. Uh, room board books, right? It's not very much. I guess you borrowed maybe a dollar or two uh, in order to do this. But notice what that means. It means the launch, what the parents have to do to get this next generation into the middle class, has shifted from being something that everybody pays for, the taxpayer pays for, to something that only the families with children are paying for. I'll make the same point, by the way, on the other end of the education spectrum. Uh, in 1970, I actually went back and looked at this data. It surprised me. Almost no one sent their children to preschool. Uh, and in fact, if you go back and read the articles, you read Dr. Spock uh, from the 1970s editions, 1960s, 1970s editions, they can play with the neighborhood children, they'll be fine. Uh, and uh, only a tiny fraction of American children are in, public, uh, are in, are in preschool. Today it is totally flipped. Read, read Baselton, read all the, all the education folks, early childhood specialists. They are completely uniform. Children need two years of preschool. Uh, and once again, who pays for the two years of preschool? Uh, it's paid by, for by the family. So one way you can look at this is in the space of a generation, we went from 12 years being enough to push that kid forward to adding two more years, that's 14, right? And four more years, that's 18 years of education in order to push those kids forward. Only the difference now is the family privately pays for a third of the education themselves. And we could have some great fun with what the education costs uh, uh, recently, uh, let's see, it's been about three years ago, uh, Chicago, uh, uh, City of Chicago did a publicly supported preschool program, so there was already some tax dollars in it, uh, but the parents had to pay tuition, and I always love this one, the tuition was larger than the tuition at the University of Illinois. Um, that's what the parents were supposed to come up with to put uh, their three-year-old uh, into the system that was going to get them the education that was going to get them ultimately launched into the middle class. Um, so in that sense, we shrink part of what's available to support families with children so that they can move forward, so they can launch this next generation. So how have families responded to this? This is where I said I'll come, I'll come to at least a little bit of my data here. Let me tell you about bankruptcy. Um, what's happened with bankruptcy? 
what this one's about, I'll tell you what the, the bright colors are here. This is about bankruptcy filing rates per thousand in the population. And this is in uh, 2000, 2001. These, no, actually, I rolled these data for it. It's about 2003 on these data. Uh, married couples are the far one in the light blue. About 7.4 married couples per thousand married couples, so each is being within their own group, uh, filed for bankruptcy. Unmarried men, uh, about 6.3 per thousand. Unmarried women, about 7.2 per thousand. But the trick here for all three of these groups is they are all childless groups. So I've got them all, you've got them in their graphics, they're couples, men, women alone, men alone, women alone, and none of them have children. These are the bankruptcy filing rates in the United States in the early 2000s. Now let's add in children. Turquoise again is married couples, only this time with children. It's jumped, the filing rate has jumped to 15 per thousand. And among uh, married women heads of household, no husband in the household, it has jumped to 23 per thousand. You notice, by the way, unmarried men with children fall out statistically because there aren't enough to be able to say something that's uh, uh, statistically valid about what's going on here. So what this one tells me is that families with children are under enormous financial stress. I watch them, I study them from the bankruptcy end of the spectrum, which is where they end up. And let me tell you a little bit about why they file for bankruptcy. 90% of those families file for one of three reasons. Job loss, medical problem in the family, sometimes the wage earner, sometimes a child, uh, or family breakup, either a death in the family or a divorce in the family. In fact, Nearly half the families have at least two of those three, and about 20% have been hit by three out of three. Um, that's how it is that they end up in bankruptcy. Now, let me give you an idea of what these numbers mean, so I can put them in a little bit, little bit different context. These families that are filing for bankruptcy, families with children, more children live in homes that will file for bankruptcy this year than live in homes that will file for divorce. That is, there are more children in America, and this has been true, by the way, since the late 1990s. Every year, more children are going through their parents' bankruptcy than are going through their parents' divorce. So let me say that to you a different way. You know anybody who got divorced any time, say, in the last six or seven years? Um, you know some children uh, uh, who live in homes where mom and dad have split up? Uh, then you, statistically speaking, know more, if you know random cross-sections of America, you know more who went bankrupt. Why do you think you don't know more that went bankrupt? And that's because you can't hide divorce, but you can sure hide bankruptcy. And that's what people have done. Um, there's an enormous stigma attached to filing for bankruptcy. Uh, when we interviewed the families who had filed for bankruptcy, um, quite frankly, I, I was shameless about this. We paid them $50 if they would take extensive uh, telephone surveys for us uh, about bankruptcy. And so we got very high response rates. But one of the key things we learned early on is that people would say, don't use the word. Partly because I can't bear to hear it, and partly because I'm afraid a child will pick up an extension phone, or someone will walk into the room and hear me use it. 
and we don't want anyone to know. About 85% of the families that were filing for bankruptcy were hiding it from their own parents, from their siblings, from their best friends, and in some cases from their own children. Um, many of them said they had other stories. Uh, yeah, they were giving up the house and moving in with Bob's mom because Bob's mom's health was not good. Yeah, yeah that's a story you can tell. Uh, we're moving across country because there are better job opportunities. Yeah, they're moving across country hoping they can get a job, uh, but um, going to live in rather reduced circumstances. So those are the families who are filing for bankruptcy, uh, in part the reflection of what's happened to this safety net. So I just want to wrap this up <clears throat> and open it up for some questions and answers because I just want to make three or four kind of big points at the end here about, about what we're talking about uh, uh, with these families in financial trouble. The first I want to make is a point about the poor. I've hammered on the middle class over and over and over. And I've done it because for everybody who cares about poor families in America, you should be riveted on these data. Middle class families under enormous economic stress have fewer resources to give when we talk about how it is that we're going to help the poor. More importantly, they frankly have less appetite to give when they see themselves as already stretched, when they see themselves facing foreclosure notices and, and, and bill collectors, uh, they back off. And more critically, a middle class that looks like this, a middle class where people are falling out and into poverty, is a middle class that has less room to bring the poor up and provide them the opportunities to join the middle class. I think people who talk about the intractability of poverty now are absolutely right. There are social issues far beyond my expertise. But this is an element of it that no one's talking about. There's no place for the poor to go. Uh, and not much help coming from the middle class today compared with even a generation ago. The second point I want to make about what these data speak to me about is that I fear we're moving from a three-class society to a two-class society. Um, America has always been sort of one of those, those uh, uh, perfect distributions. Uh, some poor, some rich, and a big, big, solid middle class stuck right there in the middle. Um, uh, Americans identify with the middle class. Uh, it affects our democracy. It's part of what gives us our political stability. It's what affects our economy and drives our economy. It affects our self-identity. It affects who we are in this world. But I fear that what's happening and what these data are about is that we actually are going to see a larger upper class. We're, going to, we're seeing that, not just the rich rich, but the sort of rich. The ones who have those same jobs, bringing in two incomes, who don't get sick, who don't lose a job, who in that income volatility, who in the things that go wrong in the medical world, who don't divorce, who don't have a death in the family, who don't hit any of life's bumps, they stay with the upper group. They put away some savings. They don't get deep in debt. They do okay. And then the rest is just one long trail of underclass that stays on a constant debt treadmill. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little less, but never out of debt. Uh, never any real economic security. Uh, I could change my metaphors. People who are just constantly living on the edge of a cliff, some falling over, some scratching back up a little, 
but never with the kind of security that for the first three quarters of a century we associated with being middle class. I worry about what that means. I worry that the middle class, which used to mean solid and boring and, and not worth studying, uh, only worth making fun of, you know, my parents were hopelessly middle class, you know, sort of remarks, that that's kept us from seeing a problem in the middle class that threatens not just these families with children that I've identified, but really threatens the fabric of our, of our, of our country. We have a middle class today that is newly weakened. And I think what this means is that it's time to realign both our academic and our political interests and alliances to talk more about what's happening to these families. So with that, I'm going to quit and take as many questions as people have. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.